in a smoky writer's room in 1980s Hollywood. Conan, what is best in filmmaking? To crush your fans, to see them disappointed before you, and to hear the lamentations of the podcasters. We're ready to start filming. Conan, what be a podcaster? Fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mokel, here with my muscly and oiled co-hosts. I'm Chelsea Hollowell, a girl that just goes where she's led in life. <laughs> Not... But you have a destiny. You have a fate. Right. It's kind of like... A worse way of saying I go with the flow. <laughs> Much worse. And I'm Jack Olander, the thief, but not that thief. I'm a I'm a mockery of the last thief. You know, like a a, a bee thief. That's me, the bee thief. Wait, you've been stealing bees? <laughs> yes. I was wondering why you got stung so much. It's not clear. I'll I never your, tell. I liked your mixture of the two words, bee thief and just beef. beef. I'm the beef. What a beef. <laughs> uh, well, guys, so we've got kind of an auspicious event coming up here. This is uh, just about our one year anniversary of creating Swords and Satire. So we thought it'd be the perfect time to do Conan the Destroyer, because Conan the Barbarian was, gasp, our first ever podcast episode. And it's kind of like our mascot movie for the show. That's why we always say, Hail Crom at the end of every episode. Hail Crom? Hail Crom. Oh, no, it's not over yet. Oh, oh, oh for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Is I that you, Crom? <laughs> I, I think we'd all agree that Conan has a special place in all of our hearts. Yes. Um, the first movie is a very fun fantasy movie that I think does a lot of things right. That kind of sets up the archetype for a lot of the sword and sorcery movies that we cover on our show and has a lot of the elements that are... I mean, it both has elements that are common throughout the movies we watch, and it also does a lot of stuff that the other movies we watch don't really do or handles them differently. So, yeah, I mean, that's why Conan the Barbarian is really good. So what did we do this week? We watched a movie that's uh, not nearly as good as Conan the Barbarian, and that is Conan the Destroyer. Yeah, and we're going to really get into the meat of... The meat and potatoes of why... Which this, is Conan's diet. <laughs> uh, of why this movie just doesn't hold up to the standards set by the first one. Before we get into the summary, though, I just wanted to point out that uh, Conan the Destroyer is a 1984 film directed by Richard Fleischer. It stars Arnold Schwarzenegger, Grace Jones, Mako, Wilt Chamberlain, Olivia Diabo... And Tracy Walter. 
Nice. And Andre the Giant. And a, a uh, uncredited Andre the Giant. Yep. Actually, two wrestlers, because Pat Roach, the guy who plays Tothamon, is also uh, was also a professional wrestler from England. Nice. So when Arnold is having the wrestling scene with him, I got confused because I'd forgotten about uh, the Andre the Giant scene, too. I was like, wait, he wrestles Andre the Giant here? <laughs> but no, he doesn't. That He wrestled Andre the Giant later. In the form of Dagoth. Leech Dagoth. Leech Daddy? Uh. <laughs> Ooh. Okay. So yeah, here's a summary for Conan the Destroyer. So we open up on a scene of Conan praying at an abandoned... I'd say it's like a table well no it's like a maybe a flat stone altar oh right right altar a park bench <laughs> large park bench yeah now it's this is an altar to crom probably which is i guess why it's empty and there's nothing really there or around because crom doesn't do anything for you because crom doesn't give a fuck <laughs> which is why we all pray to him yeah, the only reason Conan is praying is because he wants to get his girlfriend Valeria back. And uh we it turns out he's still a thief and he's Some got Some things a, never change. He's got a new friend named Malik who's kind of like a one-trick pony. He he knows how to kill people one way and he's, he's like got one sneaky trick to murder anybody who's trying to kill him. <laughs> Royalty hates him. <laughs> yep and um so a local queen queen teramis recruits him in probably the worst way possible by acting like she's going to capture him first and getting all of her bodyguards beaten up yeah i don't really know why conan agrees to work with her after that like it seems like a very counterintuitive thing for Conan to do. Oh, it's because she uses her magic to show him uh, Valeria alive, laying down on the altar. Sure, but Conan is supposed to be incredibly distrustful of magic. Yeah, I don't know. He got along with the wizard pretty quick in the first one. Then... Yeah, that's true. I mean, Akira really kind of earns his uh, trust. Also, yeah, he's probably desperate, so he wasn't thinking straight. That's fair. Yeah, he he's just kind of went single-minded in his quest to bring Valeria back. And back at the palace in Shadazar, Queen Teramis is talking to Conan about this quest she wants to send him on. It's basically, this movie could be known as Conan's sweaty fetch quest. Because... <laughs> <laughs> yep that pretty much covers it he's to accompany Johanna or wait Jehenna Jenna Jenna sorry but written like fantasy style right uh he's to accompany Jenna a 14 year old princess yes princess who's like a chosen one she's going on a quest to get a key and she's the only one who knows how to find it and Conan and his friends are supposed to help her along the way. And while Queen Teramis is talking to Conan, she's basically just like, 
talking about her dream cult and her, her cult that she's the leader of. It's an elder god named Dagoth. And while she's talking to him, she's just like fondling a statue of her god the whole time. It's very uncomfortable. Like you do. You see, Krom is a god that doesn't give a fuck, so you worship him. And Dagoth is a god that gives fuck. So, you know, they both have perks. <laughs> She's got it bad, got it bad, got it bad. She's hot for Dagoth. Yes. <laughs> Chelsea wanted that. I mean, yes. his statue is laying so seductively. That's true. That's that, is, that is a fuckable statue. She She does look like she wants to fuck him. I mean, later on, later on, we find out that Dagoth is Andre the Giant. So, like, not bad. Yeah. If you die having sex with him, at least you'll die happy. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and that's the message of the film. That, that is that is what Terramis is gambling on. Uh, on yeah. Yeah, I love that. That's the message of this PG-rated family movie. Yeah. <laughs> Oof. We will get into this being a PG movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's really toes the line, but yeah, more later. So Conan and Malik accompany Jana on her quest to find this key, and she's also accompanied by the royal captain of the guard, Bombada. Wilt Chamberlain. Yep. And um she basically is following her instinct to know where to get to this key. And she takes them to some wizard's glacier tower. Is it Tothamon? Tothamon, yeah. But that not uh, not before they recruit two more adventurers That's to their right. party. On the way to the tower, they rescue Akiro, the wizard from the first movie. Who is about to be eaten by some cannibals who want to eat him to take his power. And they also rescue another hero, this time a new one, named Zula. Played by a badass and super cut Grace Jones. Yep. And they basically don't rescue her. I, I should take that back. They cut her free so she has a fighting chance against the people that wanted to kill her. So, I mean, Jenna points out that it's not a fair fight because Zula's going up against six men by herself and conan goes oh well i know how to even the odds i will just break the chain that is on zula's leg and then she will easily beat the shit out of six dudes and conan is right yep and she steals a horse and finds her way to them and uh she basically says she'll give her life for conan and he just kind of smiles and says we'll see and then she's on the team <laughs> And this is also where I'd like to point out that um, Akira is played by Mako, who fans will probably recognize as the original Uncle Iroh from Avatar The Last Airbender. Big Uncle Iroh energy. Yes. <laughs> this is classic Uncle Iroh energy. Yeah. Yeah, he's a little wily, but his heart's in the good place, you know? Yep. Yeah. So while they're resting at some ruins at the edge of the lake before they're going to storm the glacier tower of the wizard Tothamon, um, Tothamon basically knows they're there and he turns into a pink shadow dragon and then just kind of flies in, takes Jehenna and brings her back to his tower 
and just mentions the prophecy that she's supposed to take the crystal. So it seems like he's trying to help her. So it's unclear why they felt like they would have to fight their way in. He seems like he's on their side. It's kind of confusing. Then Jenna just takes a nap for the rest of the scene. Yep. And the rest of the heroes infiltrate and find a back way in once they realize that she's gone. And Conan eventually defeats the wizard by fighting some kind of snake demon guy and then seeing through all of the illusions because Tothamon is a master of illusions. Listen, Conan breaks a lot of mirrors. That's how he wins. And he throws his sword through another mirror and Tothamon is there and he gets impaled. That's how you kill a wizard. (laughs) Yeah. So Jenna takes the key, which is actually a rare diamond, and she's the only person in the entire world that can actually touch it without exploding, apparently. (laughs) That's a weird uh, special power to have. Well, it's basically like an infinity stone in that way. Oh, wait a minute. So is she a celestial? I guess. You know, That's what I like The to reason hear. that she fits the prophecy is that she was chosen from birth. She was marked with the specific star birthmark. Mm-hmm. And that's how they knew that she was the one to fulfill the prophecy and get this key. And so she follows her instincts and leads the group to another ancient temple where she's supposed to exchange the key for this horn that belongs to her god, Dagoth. When they get there, she basically puts it in a pillar and walks through fire to get the horn unscathed. And that's where Akiro sees the writing on the wall. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) And he reads the ancient hieroglyphs that tell of this prophecy, but he learns that it's an apocalypse prophecy that returning the horn to Dagoth will awaken an elder god. This takes them off guard this whole time. They thought they were following some epic quest. They didn't understand why Queen Teramis would want this horn. What's going on? Is this really going to awaken an elder god? But Conan hears of this and basically doesn't care. He just decides to get drunk, right? He shrugs his shoulders and says, as long as Valeria lives, I don't care what happens. <laughs> that is classic Conan. Yeah. <laughs> yep. You know, he's concerned with what's right in front of him, you know? Yep. So on their way out, once they get the horn, they try to leave. And this old priest meets them with his small army and they basically want to take the girl, but he, the priest they meet, seems to know about the prophecy and what the horn is used for. Priests know about prophecy. That's basically their whole shtick. Yeah. Uh, so they want to take the girl. Conan kind of is like, hey, dude, she's our charge. You can't have her. And they basically get into a knockout fight uh, in which death happens. A lot of death. So much death. Just Conan and Bombada are fighting this small army between the two of them. And they get away by going into the inner sanctum where they found the horn because they find out there's a hidden passageway that leads out of the temple so they can get out that me- by that route. And while they're trying to get away, 
Akiro has a psychic wizard battle with the other priest, which is pretty cool. We can pew, talk pew, pew. <laughs> more about that later. And basically at this point, as they're all escaping, Bombada breaks part of the stone passageway at trapping Conan and the rest of the crew. And it's unclear. Why does he do this? Is he afraid that Conan is going to hurt Jehenna because he expressed this, some of this concern before. So then, Bombada returns with Jehenna and the Horn back to Queen Teramis in Shadazar. And it is Jehenna's birthday, and Queen Teramis gives her her first taste of wine. And you have to wonder what is in the cup. Is it just wine, or is no. there something else? And so... They have a ceremony where they reattach the horn to the Dagoth statue right in the middle of his forehead. You know, like a unicorn. And it turns out that Queen Teramis is calling for Jehenna's death. She's telling the high priest. I'm pretty sure it's still just Jenna. I can't keep it straight. Uh, calling for Jenna's death because she tells the high priest to sacrifice her because Dagoth must have a virginal sacrifice to come back as a pure being, I guess? A pure being of ultimate evil. Right. This is when Conan and friends come in. and Conan and friends. <laughs> Saturdays on Fox. <laughs> they stop this evil ritual and end up killing the high priest. So there was a sacrifice, but it really fucks up Dagoth. He's able to come through, but he looks jacked up. After that, he's a real Andre the Giant type, <laughs> except with yeah. except covered in prostheses. <laughs> like I said, a real that, Andre the Giant type. Yeah, that sexy statue turns into a big leech with arms and legs, basically. Yeah, it's pretty disgusting. And Conan has a wrestling match with Dagoth. And then Akiro shouts at him to tear off the horn. Should have used the folding chair. <laughs> Eventually, he tears it off of his head. Oh, it is so meaty. Yeah, it's pretty disgusting. And Dagoth eventually weakens and dies. And at some point during this fight, the queen gets yoked. I don't remember how that happened. <laughs> I mean, I don't think the movie really gave us much to go on anyways. Yep. And after that, Jenna's in charge. That that could have also been the name of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she hires all of Conan's followers out from under him to work for her in her court. Dude, such a dick move. <laughs> yeah. And then he she tries to get him to be her husband. And he's just like, nah. And, and makes her cry, and then he leaves, and that's about the end of it. And then we get a teaser of Conan as his own king sitting on a throne again, like they did at the end of the first movie, but we never get to see him in his kingly form. Or maybe we just haven't seen it yet. Maybe. Dude, All right. they teased it at the end of the first one, and you're like, oh, that's going to be the second movie. And then the second movie happens, and they're like, oh, but he's still going to become the king one day. And you're like, oh, when? I wasn't it supposed to be? Okay. No, I'll be patient. I'll be patient. <laughs> I mean, in their defense, that's kind of how the, like, the books are not linear. 
So, like, they do jump around a lot between, like, different periods oh. in Conan's life, but it doesn't work as well in film, though, because, you know, there's a fair number of short stories, but only two movies, so. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, now that we've got that covered, we should probably head into the Delve. This is the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of Conan, the Destroyer. So, I kind of skipped over a scene when I was doing the summary that... um, You cad! (laughs) That they should not have had in the movie. It's terrible writing. It completely takes away any hope of suspense or building up any kind of con like meaningful conflict or stakes in the movie in the beginning right after conan agrees to accompany jenna on her mission the queen tells bombada to go with jenna and then she admits that she's going to be sacrificing jenna and that she also wants to uh, Bombada to kill Conan on the way. And it just completely removes any opportunity, like I said, for suspense or... You, you're, you're saying they say the quiet part loud that we already knew, like just from the setup of the movie, that Taramis was going to betray Conan, but like saying it to the audience so directly... Is just like they're just under the assumption that fans during the whole movie or that viewers during the movie will be like, why is Bombada trying to like mess with Conan? It's like w- because we've seen any movie ever, so we know <laughs> that this is what's happening. It takes away what could have been the barest minimum of plot. Yeah, but also a potentially intense moment when they return to the palace near the end. And when she's giving Jenna her wine and when they're doing the ceremony, they could have waited to show her betrayal until that moment. And it could have been much more impactful. And instead, it's just kind of boring. Probably a good summation of this entire movie. (laughs) Maybe we should, before we give our ratings, though, we should um, talk about the themes and stuff. You know, uh, I, I think I've got a theme to introduce. You hit Start us off then, Jack. Yeah, man versus nature is one that I noticed with, uh, you know, it's a classic. Yep. Uh, if you'll remember in the first film, there's a scene where Conan punches a camel in the head. <laughs> That's right. And knocks it to the ground. I recall that. And, you know, yeah. and you might you might have been worried like, man, am I going to get to see Conan hurting animals in the <laughs> second movie. Oh, God. And, yeah, you do. He, he punches a camel again. The same knocking camel. Knocking it to the ground. They specifically same point camel. out that this is the same camel from before. Yep. 
Oh, that's that's even more tragic. (laughs) This is effectively Conan's longest term rivalry. Yep. (laughs) I'd love to see the camel come back as the villain in the third movie. (laughs) If they don't get that camel to come back for this new uh, final sequel that they keep teasing with Arnold, I don't even know what the point of the movie would be. It's true, but that's not the only animal that Arnold strikes. He also knocks out a horse in this movie as well. Does he? Yeah, he does. He he uh when he's getting attacked at the beginning by all the thugs, he knocks one of the horses to the ground. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, and shit. there's even a scene where he's walking through town and he sees an elephant standing up and the fight or flight response activates in him. Yeah. But he decides an elephant might be out of his weight class and decides not to. But I, I think he maybe could have gave the elephant a run for its money. Yeah, that's fair. I think that it's the reach of that trunk he probably realized would put him at a severe disadvantage. It's true. But I yeah. thought it was clever, that man versus nature and uh, man yeah, versus abomination. <laughs> Otherworldly abomination from outer space. It's a it's a writing trope as old as time. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, before time. I'm glad you pointed that out. I mean the uh, the (laughs) the fact that this movie would not pass any PETA standards is certainly a significant point. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't check at the end if it said that no animals were harmed during the filming, but obviously, if it did say that, it would be a bald faced lie. (laughs) Animals have been harmed again in the filming of this. What do you mean again? (laughs) It's the same camel. That's what it is. To be honest, Jamie, I think with this movie, I think we should really get into the meat of it after this theme um now you mentioned meat how much meat do you think arnold ate during the filming of this movie (laughs) because wow five chickens by himself every day yeah (laughs) oh yeah maybe you remember that elephant (laughs) (laughs) tastes just like chicken um (laughs) i think like with this movie it's so overt I think we should talk about power and class struggle. Oh, I don't know that we've never talked about anything like that before on this show. That might be a different podcast. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. We always talk about power and class struggle. Let's talk about it. (laughs) So they show many different types of power in this movie. There's martial power, prowess. There's pure brawn. Which that's, Conan. that's the Conan power, yeah. the Conan form of power. But Conan is also, we know, a king later on. Right. And he earns his kingdom not hereditarily, but by conquering. taking over a kingdom. Yep. By conquering. Hence why the original third movie was supposed to be called Conan the Conqueror. Yeah. Yes. And in this movie, we also see a lot of evidence of magical power and legal power. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. There's a part that I thought really highlighted this theme of power and class. Uh, later on in the movie, after Jenna's been taken and Conan's troop makes it outside of the cave that they were in, 
and they're deciding what to do, whether they're going to head back to Shadazar or go on their own way. And Conan's like, no, we must keep going and help Jenna. She is very much in need of our help. And Malik, the comic <laughs> relief character, who's a big disappointment, but who actually has some interesting moments, uh, says, no way, we're thieves. We're not supposed to be doing heroic stuff. And I thought that was a very interesting, this honest assessment of Malik's worldview, where he thinks that is he, he has no business trying to help out people and be noble for the rope for the royalty or nobility because they're the lower class people like he and conan don't have standing I and mean, this is conan at this time when he's still kind of a vagrant i mean he can't even afford clothes look at the the loincloths conan's forced to wear throughout the entire movie yeah i mean he's still a barbarian queen Teramis points out that he owes loyalty to no man or woman to no one yeah so i mean conan is this entity that exists outside of the power struggle uh, i'm sorry that exists outside of the power structure and malik is content with that position he is happy to continue being a rogue and a scoundrel and he thinks that People like he and Conan should stick to that and not get involved in political wheelings and dealings. And I got to say, I kind of respected that. It's like you see that the, the people who are at the higher levels of the social strata are kind of this dishonest dishonesty, <laughs> have this dishonest <laughs> dishonesty, right? Where they don't really acknowledge that they're just, just as bad of criminals, if not worse, than the quote-unquote lower classes it's the lower classes, again, quote unquote, who acknowledge that, you know, they know what they're about and they don't need to put on airs. And I really respected that about Malik. And you know what's interesting is we can discuss magic and power and whether it's considered trustworthy or untrustworthy within the text of the film. And it does have to do with social power as well. I mean, majocracy is a social system that we don't often see in the real world. Right. I mean, not as much as I would like to, I suppose. So. Or maybe I wouldn't like that. Hmm. Am I a wizard or not in this scenario? You know, if it were the real world, I would imagine people would be like, don't take our wands away. <laughs> the NWA, the National Wand Association. Oh, oh God. man. I've got my NWA card right here. Nice. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Jack, you have to create a, a world setting like that now. <laughs> but um, so what I'm getting at is those magicians or wizards or magicrats or, or yeah including priests who have magical abilities in this world any of those that seem like they might be a member of the powerful elite are seen as untrustworthy or underhanded or two-faced in some way and in a lot of cases they really are right yes or they're simply mistrusted because of the nature of their magic or they're kind of high up in their own tower, kind of lording. Literally, they're yeah. literal ivory tower. Yeah, like Tothamon. And it's all an illusion. Right. It crumbles as soon as his mirrors are broken. His whole tower, his whole empire 
literally crumbles into Once the sea. Once they see him for who he really is. Yeah. Yeah, his magic is all smoke and mirrors, except in this case, it's all mirrors and mirrors. I think there was some, like, dry ice smoke from those little cages that the actors have to wear in their mouths to replicate a cold environment that I read about. Yeah, that's they crazy. They forced the actors to put dry ice in their mouths. That's terrible. Which is very bad. Yeah. Very creative, at least. <laughs> I suppose. It's super unhealthy. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. But, um... We were actually onto something really good, and we really need to drive it home. We were just pointing out that Tothamon's power was all smoke and mirrors. So it's kind of like our power structure. You could kind of blow that up and say it's a comment on our power structure that is all illusory. It's a construct, and it requires people trusting those in power and legitimizing their position for them to stay in positions of power and Tothamon's is illusory because he created it himself and there's nobody there to legitimize it for him he lives alone in his tower right it's only power is only as good as one's ability to either enforce it or to be recognized for having it right yeah steel is not strong flesh is stronger Yes, that's right. <laughs> exactly. Going back to the themes of the original movie. Yes. So, I mean, I do like then, because Conan is, like I said earlier, this character who's not supposed to trust magic, but he does trust Akiro. Exactly. Who is not a wizard who has any interest in putting on airs or having power over others. When we first meet Akiro in the first movie, he is effectively a hermit living alone in this blasted wasteland. Yeah. Conan wanders up and finds him. Conan trusts Akiro's magic because he sees that this is not somebody who wants to lord control over others. So therefore he has no reason to just to distrust Akiro's intentions. Akiro just wants to get by. Right. He doesn't have any interest in using his power on anybody. He uses it to help people. In the first movie, he lived in a tower made of wood, and it, he got up to it from just one small ladder. And the first thing he does is come down to the ground level with Conan, and Conan is above him on his horse. So already he's not trying to be in a position of power over Conan. Yeah. yeah. And so it's unfortunate then that we see Akiro trying to be eaten by those cannibals who are people who would be in a probably similar position to him. But oftentimes people who don't have much power will attack others who also don't have much power because they see it as a way to maintain a higher level of social hierarchy than what they actually have. And oftentimes, those feelings of animosity towards other people in one's own social strata comes from the people who actually wield political power over the people on the lower power structure to keep the attention away from themselves. Exactly. So somebody like Tothamon would want the cannibals to attack somebody like Akiro so that Tothamon can continue using his smoke and mirrors to control people while eliminating anybody who might have legitimate abilities who would be a challenge to them. Definitely. And in the immortal words of the rapper Tone Loke from the film Fern Gully, 
Uh, welcome to the food chain. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, more on class struggle. There's a scene where the queen is talking about the politics of their region, right? She's speaking with Conan, and I believe Conan is Assyrian? Sumerian. 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 That's, yes, what I said was a real one. Yes. Sumer- <laughs> no, no, Conan, Conan, Sumerians were real. You don't forget, Conan was a real historical figure who came to Conan writer Robert E. Howard in his dreams yep. and told the stories of Sumeria and the ancient people of this land of hyperborea dude that's so cool <laughs> i know i wish conan would come and tell me stories i know why didn't we open with that that's the <laughs> dopest shit I'm pretty, oh. I'm pretty sure i talked about this in the original conan the barbarian episode maybe oh, but it's, it's okay to revisit cooler. it yeah yeah, yeah I mean, that's cooler the second time that's what howard said and i have no reason to doubt him yeah. it's so awesome yeah conan used to Come to him in his dreams and and tell him about this other world. So cool. I I like to think in the dreams, Conan is like, yes, that was a good time. And it was long before I became king. (laughs) Oh, are you going to tell me about that? Maybe next time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure, Conan. It's just you've been coming to me for like three years now. We'll we get there when we get there. Right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> but as you were saying about uh, Conan and his people, yeah. So the queen is mentioning how you know she's from this kingdom or queendom, right? Yes. Shadazar is saying, ah, oh, we come from a place with structure, government, organization. We're above the Sumerians, right? They have no kings. They're just an anarchist land where the strong, like, just basically devour the weak, right? Yeah. Not rule over them. It's just constant conflict. Right. That was insane. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, a lot of capable, down-to-earth people seem to come out of Samaria, if I'm being honest. I mean, yeah. Conan, you know, started as a boy in Samaria, then he grew up to be a humble mill pusher, and then eventually someday a king, apparently. It's from, true. From mill mill pusher to gladiator. <laughs> to adventurer to king. To destroyer to king. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, somewhere along the line, he also became a barbarian. Yeah, it happened. <laughs> and a babysitter. <laughs> true I thought he, that was Conan a... wears a lot of hats like that one that he wore in the first movie with the uh, kind of armored thing going down in front of his yeah. forehead yeah yeah. or when he was a um, a security guard at that kindergarten <laughs> right yeah yeah those little five year olds bringing their knives to school trying to cut a fool oh, Conan the educator that's what I want to see. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, it seems like, well, we know there are a lot of different kingdoms in the Hyperborean world. There's Samaria. There's this... Aquilonia. Queendom. Aquilonia, that's the one. Stygia. Wait, is that Atlantis? Uh, more, I think more Aquilonia. or less. 
Yeah. Yeah. Stygia. I mostly know this from the Age of Conan MMO that I used to play. Nice. And then the Huns are in the first one. So I'm surprised that Sumeria is able to go on without a government. I think that's just pretty interesting. Yeah, they're more like a loose confederation of tribal leaders. Yeah, it seems more egalitarian. Or tribal uh, lands is what I meant to say. Yeah, it is a yeah. little more egalitarian. A bit of a, like, strongest will survive type of thing. But, but... it seemed like both men and women were warriors. Yes. And could work in any task. Both Conan's mother and father were warriors and worked the forge. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was a family business. Yeah. See, Conan comes from humble beginnings. Is he our next savior? God, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, too. I'd vote for him. <laughs> Jack's imagining Conan coming to save him now. <laughs> oh, gosh, I can only hope. He but, uh... wore his crown on a troubled brow. This is a man who is thoughtful. Yes. It's true. I didn't think about that. Yeah, that's true. One of the things about governments in the in the world, right? Samaria was previously essentially ruled by Thulsa Doom. Yep. Not long before this film. Right. I would have really Two years, loved, technically. <laughs> yeah, two years. I would have really loved a reference from the Queen in this. Talking to Conan about like, hey, you just overthrew the leader of Samaria. That was some crazy stuff. And then he dipped. Yeah. It's. Yeah. But like, that's a major political thing that happened. Also, Thulsa Doom definitely had a ton of her citizens that joined his cult. He was a thousand year old cult leader. You thought she would have mentioned that or been more thankful to him. But no. That was yeah. just another snake cult, though. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Ain't no passing craze. That's copyright. You can't use that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought up that point about Akiro, too, Jamie, because I was thinking that when magic is considered trustworthy, it's, it's being used to help the common person. It is the people's magic. Yes. Yeah, that's great. I love that. <laughs> that's I'm a good that line. <laughs> that's a good t-shirt right there. Yeah, the that's people's really magic. Good. Put that in um, your majortocracy. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, why don't we head to the bounty board? The scorching noonday sun burns down upon your muscled and well-oiled back, a back given unbelievable definition by the years of pushing your mill. Your leg muscles burn from the constant circular march. Your arm muscles ache from holding them out. Your arm muscles ache from holding them forward, pushing the mill constantly, ever milling. Your task never completed until one day you step away from the mill. You look inside. You finally decide to look upon your life's work. You peer into the grain, into the mill, and see written in the crushed flour, 
bounties. This week, Swords and Satire is proud to be sponsored by Audible. Now, I gotta tell you, I've been an Audible subscriber for a long time, and I've really enjoyed the audiobooks that I've listened to through the service. They've got a great selection of memoirs by filmmakers and actors from some of our favorite fantasy movies. Obviously, a lot of fantasy and sci-fi literature that all three of us love here at Swords and Satire, and tons of other great content that you're definitely going to enjoy. So we want to give you the opportunity to sign up for Audible and also help support our show by going to audibletrial.com slash swords and sign up for your free 30-day trial. And when you do that, you're going to get a credit for a free book that's yours to keep, whether or not you keep your membership. You're going to get access to select Audible Originals, and you'll get an email reminder before your trial ends. But I'm sure you're going to decide that you want to keep your membership because there's so much that Audible provides. They have thousands of titles for you to choose from, and they're constantly adding new content all the time. Our other sponsor this week is you, or it could be you, if you head on over to patreon.com slash swords and satire and pledge to support us with a monthly donation for making this show your money goes a long way to helping us keep making these shows it's been one year like i said since we started swords and satire we've been having a great time chatting with you folks every week and sharing our thoughts about our favorite genre of movie fantasy and if you decided to open up your hearts and give us a monthly pledge, then we can continue to make the great content that you've come to know over the last year. And you also get exclusive content for your monthly contributions, special episodes and outtakes that we create specially for our patrons. If I'm not mistaken, the outtakes for the month of August include a lot of jizz jokes. <laughs> yes, it's true. <laughs> I mean, you don't want to miss that. I mean, what how else what else could it have been if we were discussing Princess Mononoke? That's correct. It's true. Pay no attention to the jizz behind the curtain unless you're a patron. <laughs> Being a patron is the only way to see the jizz behind the curtain. <laughs> I've been waiting for this moment all my life. <laughs> all right, back to the episode. Yeah, I, I think that that is one of the things that the movie gets right. Let's talk about some things that the movie gets wrong. There's some other themes. There's also like something strange about this movie that Jack kind of hinted at before that we should talk about. But um, yeah, I mean, do we want to talk about Destiny? I mean, this is another fantasy movie that handles Destiny. It kind of goes away from the interesting themes of the first movie about usurping traditional authority, reclaiming lost power, and per finding personal empowerment, and just kind of sums it all up in destiny just follow your your instincts and some unseen hand will guide you and there's no choice involved yeah i was really disappointed the, so the first movie i mean like chelsea said it covers a lot of those themes it also has these interesting things to say about fathers 
Yes. About like fathers as authority figures. I mean, throughout the first movie, we've got Conan's biological father and mother who are important characters in the beginning. We've got Thulsa Doom in this father role, et cetera, et cetera. All of that gets swept away. All of the interesting things that the second movie could have had to say get swept away for, like you said, Chelsea, this thing about just destiny. It's just another movie where fate is fickle and its hand guides you and there's really nothing you can do. And it just it really robs this movie, I think, of having the opportunity to explore any themes in a satisfying way. There's no strong arc throughout the movie. We know from the beginning that Conan's going to be betrayed, that Jenna's supposed to be sacrificed. We don't really get a lot of time to get into any of the characters' heads. And we just get these weird kind of disjointed scenes of Conan just kind of flitting from place to place with no control over it. In the first movie, he is like making choices. He's going places, making decisions and driving his own story in this movie. He is very much being led along by the hand. Yeah. I gotta say the first one really felt like it was based off a book, right? Because it was so intentional. Everything had its purpose for the narrative of the film. Like when you were seeing each scene of Conan's backstory, it was showing why his character is going to be the way he is in the future, though no time was wasted, each scene had a purpose. The second one felt like they got rid of the first director. True. And then had a porno director watch the first movie. And they're like, <laughs> now make one. <laughs> <laughs> Except it's family friendly. Oh, I get you. I know how, I know what you're saying. No, not like that. <laughs> no, no. Jack, you're so right. And I actually have a lot of, uh, or a few notes about these sexual overtones because they're not, it's very overt. It's not undertones at all. <laughs> now, before we get into this, I would just like to point out that Richard Fleischer was the director of Soylent Green, The Vikings, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, lots of good movies. I thought you were going to say- 20,000 Leagues he... in my ass. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like a uh, Chuck Tingle book. Oh, yes, it does. Oh, man, do you think Chuck Tingle would ever write a Conan story? Oh, that would be amazing. Oh, I hope so. Hyperbootia. <laughs> Conan, the, Conan the, the Destroyer of My, of my, of my yeah, 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 Conan the Destroyer of My Ass. Yeah. The Lord of yeah. Hyperbootia delves <laughs> 20,000 leagues into my ass. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and then Thulsa Doom said, I am the butt from which you flow. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Flesh is strong. Now more on that in rewriting history. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I also noticed there was a lot of sexual overtones often uh, inappropriate and content for a family movie that was pg it's like why didn't they just go all the way and have it rated r again like the first movie they could have just done whatever they wanted with it they didn't have to 
Well, so that's the thing is they couldn't because the studio got involved and forced them to make this movie, quote, family friendly. And neither Fleischer nor Arnold wanted that. And Arnold has basically disavowed this movie. From what I've heard, if any Conan sequel gets made, it is going to pretend that this movie did not exist. Well, which is probably for the better. Probably. Yeah, I just remember when we first started watching this, we're like, oh, yeah, it's family friendly. I'm not seeing any blood from the stabs. And then, like, the universe heard because immediately Conan swipes a guy with his sword and just buckets gush out of him. <laughs> Anime <laughs> levels of blood come splashing out of this guy right as Jack's like, there's no blood in this movie. <laughs> There were organs I've never seen flying out of this There's guy. also a shot where we see Grace Jones' whole taint. Yeah, I know. She is wearing, like, a thong. A leather and, thong. And she, like, goes for, like, a full flying split, and it is just, like, it is pornographic. <laughs> I knew it all along. Yeah. I knew it. Soiling green is ass. Like, You've all I mean, been eating it. It was... <laughs> It was one of those things where you could tell her religion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. And it kind of lingers there for a second because she's like trying to line up her kick into this guy's face. <laughs> and she's just ass over tea kettle lining it up. And the camera's pointed right there. <laughs> family friendly, everybody. Mm. A family friendly taint shot. <laughs> Oh my god but I it's mean, family friendly in the way that game of thrones is family friendly you know oh hold on a minute <laughs> that is a different type of family friendly so beyond oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh jamie that was that was golden <laughs> so beyond the um not family friendly beyond, <laughs> beyond the cinematography um which I liked. There's a lot of other imagery or messaging uh, that's very sexual, like the virgin sacrifice. She has to be a virgin. There's this big emphasis on it. And that's just lazy writing tropes. Yeah. And the whole time, different people are kind of obsessed with betting each other or who their mate is going to be. Mm-hmm. And stuff like that. There's the, you know, God Dagoth on his chaise lounge, just like spread out like a fucking playgirl centerfold. And the horn goes right on his forehead. It's a giant penis right on his forehead. You, you know, because that's where your penis is on your forehead. <laughs> yeah. Right? Exactly. <laughs> what, what are I you love talking that it's about? Just... <laughs> I love that it's just like a bejeweled and decorative bull's horn. And it's just so clearly supposed to be a phallic symbol, even though it doesn't look anything like it. You're like, that's a dick. I know that. <laughs> you can't hide that. I know a dick when I see one. I know a phallic symbol when I see one. She has to sacrifice her virginity to the horned god. Come on, guys. <laughs> Come on now. Oh, Come on. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly family friendly movie (laughs) it's pretty trite and also weird that this was their take on doing a family friendly movie also um olivia diabo was 14 when she made this movie 
I know, and she's very in some very revealing clothing the whole time. I mean, look, they didn't want to make it PG, and they basically did the bare minimum they could to meet that rating and still make the movie they wanted. And I don't even know how a lot of it got through anyway. <laughs> That's just the way things were back then. <laughs> Couldn't have said it any better myself, honestly. Also, I gotta say, you know, all these sexual overtones and thoughts that were in this one, the first movie didn't make me think like this. That's all I'm saying. And that one was rated R. So what did you do to this PG movie? <laughs> yeah. That's a great question. The other one had full on tits, too. And God yeah. bless it for that. <laughs> I mean, you, see, you can see Conan's tits the whole time in both true. movies. I guess in the first movie, it's in your face, right? You just accept it for what it is. You're like, yeah, for sure. Of course. Yeah. But in the second one, it's insidious, creeping in at the edges, right? I mean, the you implication know what? is there, but it's not really there. You're not wrong because I was just about to say, like, somehow, like, the first movie seems kind of just organic and natural. And the second movie seems, like, leering and, like, lecherous. Yeah. Well, especially with this focus, like you said, on this 14-year-old girl. Yeah, I mean, that amongst other things. For That is probably the most troubling, overt part of it. But also just, like, the way the movie is kind of written and designed, it's so... It feels so amateurish. It really, like, doesn't focus on world-building it just kind of like leans into this spectacle right. that I, I hate to use the word tasteful to describe Conan the Barbarian, but compared to the Destroyer, the first movie feels tasteful. <laughs> I get what you mean. I think it's like what you said earlier about thieves, right? The thieves in this movie are honest about the fact that they're criminals and deceitful and dishonest, right? So you respect it more. And the first movie was like, this is sexual. They're like, it's natural and it's fine, right? And you're like, you're right. It totally is. In yeah. the second movie, they put it behind veils and they make it dishonest. Yeah. Right. I guess yeah, that's yeah, a way yeah, you could yeah, see it. It feels voyeuristic in the second movie. Yeah. And I was also going to say, this is a common thing with sequels, and it's why I feel like so rarely should sequels exist, I guess, because they are rarely able to capture what made the first movie good. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is a very similar structure to what happened with, like, the Rambo movies. Love them or hate them. The first Rambo movie is, like, this exploration of the character's humanity and dehumanization the effects of war it is this commentary on what happens to somebody who goes through a horrifying experience and then the second movie is just like the same character completely recovered from his ptsd i guess and becoming a murder machine yeah and like in a similar vein like the first conan we get to explore this character's psychology. We see him grow. We see what made him into the person he would become. We see him making choices and expressing his autonomy. And the second movie is just this very paint-by-numbers fantasy 
action movie where the characters have no real motivations and are just drugged from point A to point B and so on with no control over their lives. Yeah, I think all of that is spot on. And and you hit on a really interesting point here. You're making me think about the structure of this type of storytelling as a film, a feature-length film. And with the renaissance we've been having in recent years of TV and serial dramas, we get more of this kind of elongated form of storytelling through TV shows now where you can really delve into a character and explore their adventures in a serial format so that it doesn't feel contrived. And you can really delve deeper into their psyche and kind of explore their personality through their relationships with other characters and like experientially what they do in the show. And I think that if Conan comes back or with any kind, if anybody's ever tempted to do a sequel, they should just turn it into a show. (laughs) I mean, I, I see a strong case for that. I think that Conan as a character, having read some of the books and stuff when I was younger would be much better suited to kind of like you're saying like episode length adventures that might jump around a bit to like show him at different points in his life because that is how the short stories handle the character right because as i said this was all being dictated to the writer from the actual historical conan yeah and like it doesn't happen linearly right like we don't tell stories in a linear fashion we jump around we add little points of interest we get reminded of something when we're telling somebody something and we make an aside or we go well you know what next time i talk to you it's going to be about this slightly different thing but it's all related to my bigger point about what i'm telling you right i mean that's a cool framing mechanism too for a show that would be amazing Yeah, that'd be so good. It would be so good, I don't think it would ever happen. Because it would be so hard to do. Yeah, and we've seen similar framing mechanisms work really well with, like, the storyteller that we did a special episode on for our patrons. Oh. (laughs) Patron special support Patreon. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, with that, you have the storyteller setting up each episode and talking directly to the audience. This is Jim Henson's The Storyteller, the uh, old television show, Chelsea. From the 1980s, yeah. John Hurt was the original host. But anyway, you could have a similar format. He was no Crypt Keeper, but you know. You could have a similar format where you come in on the scene and Conan is sitting there in at night in some old ruins with the campfire there and you... Like, come in closer as if you're coming up to the fire. And Ooh, he, starts, he starts talking to you about his exploits. You know, that would be really cool. Oh, yeah, that's that's very cool. And then it, like, goes into the actual yeah. episode of yeah, the yeah, story yeah. he's telling. Yeah, it'd be hard to pull off, but I, I love it. I think that with an epic show like this, you would need hour-long episodes. Yeah, maybe. Or, like, yeah, I mean, that could be. Or some episodes could be, like, multiple stories that are all interconnected. Sure. There's a lot of ways to do it. Every, like, ten episodes, you need something like that. That would be so dope. It's, like, nighttime, and you see the fire, and you go around the ruin, and the camera pans around, and Conan is like, 
Oh, my friend, I've run into you again. Come, have a seat with me and listen to my tale. Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> nice. That was perfect. Just take yeah, that whole cloth. Yeah, that'd be so good. <laughs> Come, good. take off your shirt. Sit with me. <laughs> and he flexes his pecs. <laughs> yeah. Get comfortable. <laughs> well, I, I think we kind of exhausted a lot of what we had to talk about with the big stuff in Conan the Destroyer. Why don't we move on to evil, stupid, or misunderstood. This is evil, stupid, or misunderstood. The part of the show where we take a look at the antagonist of the movie and decide if they were actually stupid all along. Or maybe they were evil. Or perhaps just misunderstood. So, guys, Queen Taramis, what do we think? What's her deal? What's going on with her? Let's wrap. I think she's a poorly written villain that doesn't hold a candle to Thulsa Doom. <laughs> Bold words from Chelsea. <laughs> Explain that. I mean, it's hard to... <laughs> Compete with James Earl Jones, you know. I would never try to compete with James Earl Jones. <laughs> he no. has he fucking this, Darth Vader. I know. He has the amazing deep voice. He has this gravitas to the way he comports himself. Probably because he's a legitimate, brilliant actor. Exactly. Like, <laughs> professionally trained. <laughs> and here we have... Hard to beat. Here we have... I don't know if the actress is a hack or the writers were hacks. But um, I, I don't like to blame the performers. No, I don't like to shit on actors because it's hard work to be in a performance like this. And the stuff around the actors, like the direction and stuff, have a huge impact on one's performance. Definitely. It 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 is kind of many. It is definitely many minds that go into making a film and into every single performance. But she was so glassy-eyed and wooden. I didn't feel like she cared about anything that was happening. And um, I didn't get the sense of any depth to her character or motivations at all. And part of that was in the writing or the editing where we just know straight up that she's evil. It's very one dimensional. She just wants to sacrifice somebody to bring her God out so they can party. And uh, who can blame her? <laughs> and um, there's not a lot of uh, reason for me to care about anything that's happening with her. She's just kind of bland. And that's, like, probably the worst thing I can say about a villain. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's really easy to make a villain complex. Is it? Like, Tim Curry once was talking about how he prefers voicing and playing villains because they're often more interesting than the protagonists. And, like, it's so easy to not mess up your villains. Like, Thulsa Doom, right? From where I'm sitting, and this might not be, you might not agree with this, but from my perspective, I see him as being pretty much just pure evil. But he was like a gravity well of charisma, like we were saying. And yeah. in a similar boat, 
he was really smart too. Yeah. Like he was motivated by, or at least he weaponized philosophy and had like a rich past and he didn't associate with his younger self, which shows depth of character, all that sort of stuff. Like there was just so much interesting tidbits. So many for this character. That's just pure evil, right? Yeah. You like a character that has pretty much no good side to him. People seem to like him. His, his followers seem to genuinely like him and he doesn't seem to be, necessarily ruling with like an iron fist but he's ruling with an iron will it's true yeah i mean his whole goal is to make you embrace his philosophy and way of life so if he wants you to you will kill yourself for him right exactly yeah. <laughs> right but in the second movie the queen can't even get one person to sacrifice themselves for her <laughs> Yeah. That's a good comparison point, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Going from an antagonist who has that control over the people around him, and then, like, the protagonist has to fight against that uphill battle versus the queen is just, like, trying to summon this ancient god, and that's where the power really comes from. I mean, that's really disappointing. Yeah. It's true. She's kind of like the shadow of Thulsadoom, right? Like, she's just kind of like the leftovers, I suppose. She's kind of pure evil, but I think through being, like, sloppily written, she comes across as partially stupid as well. I know, she didn't even have a backup version ready to sacrifice in case the first one didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, remember, Jenna was a prophesied virgin, so very important. I think all it's that true. had to happen was a virginal sacrifice. But you're honest. right. You, that's a good point. Always bring a backup virgin. <laughs> yeah. You really you think know. you'd bring like a like a dozen just in case? I was going to say, know? what if the backup virgin and the primary virgin have sex together? Oh, yeah. Then you're fucked. It's <laughs> true. <laughs> you see, the PG movie hits different. It's not the same. It's not. I was going to say, you know, like, I think, Jack, you're really hitting on the major issue with the villain in the second movie is that in the first movie, they build up this character. We meet Thulsa Doom in the beginning. We are given reason to see why Conan despises this man in the second. and, And, you know, and we kind of follow that journey of Conan looking for this person who he sees as his biggest enemy and Thulsa Doom doesn't even know Conan exists, basically. Jump forward to the second movie and Queen Terramis is seeking out Conan. She's lying to him in this very unconvincing way. We find out right in the beginning that she's going to betray him, but like there's just nothing interesting there. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. Like, she is just evil, and that is boring. Yeah. And like Chelsea said, there's nothing worse that you can be than being boring <laughs> in an action fantasy movie. She's totally bland and disappointing. It's and- true. Thulsa Doom was uh, like, ooh, and she was like, oh. <laughs> and, you know, I feel like they also really wasted the potential of having, uh, you know, giving Wilt Chamberlain more to work with because I actually thought Bombata was an interesting character in the movie, but like, it's always this half measure of 
we, like we know that it's his mission to kill Conan. So these moments where he is doing things that are aimed at hurting Conan would be more interesting if we had that uncertainty that maybe he's just practical and he doesn't actually want to hurt Conan so much as he's got a plan and he sees it and like he sees a more in these moments when he is doing things where it looks like he's trying to get Conan killed you could say if we didn't have that scene where Taramis tells him to kill Conan we might think oh he's like he knows that Conan's gonna get out of this so he's willing to risk it right but that is completely taken away from us with this scene where it just lays it out for the audience what's going on. Right. Yeah, I feel like there was a ton of missed opportunity with him. Like, he could have been so much more interesting if he was written like a lancer to Conan, and by that I mean like yeah. a friend who's also a rival. Yeah, like that would have been would, way better. Like, if he respected Conan and even kind of admired him, but worked to thwart him regardless, that would have been much better. Uh, in this one, he was just quiet and evil the whole time and shittily trying to backstab Conan and failing horribly. Yeah. Agrees. Yeah, that would have been a much better dynamic between the two of them. And just, I know that this is not exactly the topic of this section, but since we're talking about Bombata, I do want to just touch on the fact that this movie has an issue of too many characters with not enough time to get to know them because yeah. there's so many plot points to hit. I like Zula is this great character and I would have loved more time with Zula, but everything has to be spread out over all these characters. And Conan's the main character and Jenna's the most important character to some extent. It gives Malik, Bombata, Zula and Akiro no time to kind of endear themselves to the audience. And that sucks. Yeah. Like, the, uh, I love all the actors they got to play these characters, except maybe Malik. But there's just not enough time to, like, care about any of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, it's also not a part of this segment, but I just, I was reminded. The whole Jenna thing, the way it's spelled... <laughs> It has fantasy spelling, but we don't get to see it written down until the credits. So what's... Is it really a fantasy name? Is it? <laughs> no, I don't know. Doesn't count. No, yeah. You can put as many H's as you want in there. You're not <laughs> pronouncing them. <laughs> well, I think we've covered it. Queen Teramis, when it comes to villainy, she's just evil and somewhat stupid. Yeah. Just evil and somewhat stupid. Evil, boring. Evil boring. The worst type of evil. Yep. All right. Well, with that out of the way, why don't we head over to the smithy? Welcome to Ye Old Smithy, where we forge a rating from one to ten swords for this movie after we each share an epic moment or feature from the film. Jack, would you like to give us your epic moment or feature and then rate the movie from one to ten swords? Yes. So, my epic scene is when the party of adventurers is sitting around a campfire at night, and the princess is speaking with Conan about 
his quest to bring back his dead wife, I believe, or maybe it was about Zula. I don't remember the exact context leading up to it. I believe but it was I about thought, Valeria from the first movie. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and Conan is comparing Zula to Valeria. He's like, they have the same fire in them. They're both warriors, and they both have that same fighting spirit. I thought that was such a cool scene. Yes. Yeah. Conan a cool likes a back. strong woman. Definitely. But he never made a move on Zula, which I thought was cool. He's got his eyes set on the prize. Yeah. But, you know, he's like, now that's, a, now that's a person I can respect right there. I like their vibe. That was just really cool. Yeah. How he knew what he really loved about Valeria, and he recognized that same trait in someone else that he was friends with. And that shows kind of that Conan is still that kind of insightful thinker. And uh, I thought that was just a really neat scene. That's the sort of poetic thinking you don't expect the barbarian, brutish main character to have. You won't find that in Beastmaster, I'll tell you that for free. No thinking <laughs> at all Yeah, in Beastmaster, which yeah. I love, by the way. Yeah, it's a good one. But uh, all in all, I think I'll give this movie uh, probably two out of ten swords. Because I love... Arnold Schwarzenegger as Conan. <laughs> what better reason could you have? And Mako is good friend. Yeah. And uh, those, that's two actors, two stars. What about it's Grace great. Jones? Oh, snap. Two and a half swords. Grace Jones was great, but she was... Uh, I didn't like the scene where the where Malik was trying to be sleazy and come on to her. That made me very uncomfortable. Yeah. Yes. The movie, you know, it, it was just, it was just there. You know, it was bland. But uh, I have to say, Arnold really carried it. Yeah. Like, he put his heart into this movie. Even if he didn't like being a part of it, he really... He put in effort. He also literally carried all the um, sets from uh, production to on his back. He carried them because he's big and strong is what I'm saying. Yeah, he is. <laughs> he is. So uh, two and a half swords out of ten. That's a fair rating and I think justified. Yeah. Chelsea, your epic moment or feature and a rating? My epic feature is going to be the gigantic wall of hieroglyphs outlining the prophecy that we only ever see obliquely, but was obviously meticulously carved over the entire wall. <laughs> One of the sets that Arnold carried. <laughs> and we never really get to see it up close for very long if it's ever in a shot, it's always behind a character. The focus is on the characters each time. And so somebody put a lot of work into even just that one set piece. And it's just kind of a backdrop. And so that's interesting and also kind of epic that they actually did put a lot of effort into... This, the props and the settings in this movie, even though it was a flop. But um, as far as my rating, I'm going to give it 
three out of ten barbarian steel swords. Mm. Um, but remember, steel is weak. Flesh is strong. <laughs> well, a flesh sword is something else. <laughs> <laughs> that goes back to the themes of this movie that we've identified of weird sexuality. Yeah. Um, so I'll stick with steel for my rating. <laughs> Jack is just <laughs> palm to forehead. <laughs> You're rating from one to ten penises. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just so bland. Maybe it deserves a lower rating, but I rarely go very low. And I mean, they did put effort into certain parts of the movie, so that's why it gets a little something something for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about you, Jamie? What's your rating and epic moment or feature? <laughs> I'm going to have to say that my epic moment for the movie is Conan's wrestling match against Tothamon. And I mean, it is a wrestling match. Tothamon uses a scoop slam. He uses the giant swing, a lot of WWF style, like hitting and grunting and like throwing into objects and stuff. Yeah, that I was felt cool. I felt right at home with my love for professional wrestling while watching this movie and then remembering that Pat Roach was a British professional wrestler. And of course, those are going to be the moves that he's going to defer back to for an action sequence. Like, that's awesome. It's what I wish The Rock did more in his action movies like i think it's i pretty sure that in uh doom he rock bottoms carl urban or something but like they never lean into it enough never seen the rock do a people's elbow in a movie but pat roach got down and dirty and full-on sent uh arnold to a wrestling clinic to shoot the action sequence for this movie and i thought that was great but other than that I'm going to have to give this movie two and a half swords. Oh. It is a huge disappointment. Given that Conan the Barbarian is one of my favorite movies of all time. Again, it is like the flagship movie of this podcast. The first movie we decided to cover on Swords and Satire. Remembering how lackluster the second movie is, is just uh, it's a huge disappointment. I was trying to remember before we watched this one why I could not remember anything from it and why I knew Conan the Barbarian so well. And then watching it, it's like, oh, yeah, because there's just nothing interesting that happens. It's eminently forgettable. It is eminently forgettable. The coolest thing about it, I would say, is the introduction of Grace Jones's character, Zula, but they don't do anything with her. Uh, bringing back Mako to play Akiro, who was a great character from the first movie. Taking out Subotai and replacing it with Malik is like the worst decision ever. I know. Subotai is not just a comic relief character. He is this great character who Conan meets and has this instant chemistry with. And they like discuss philosophy and like their worldviews and religion. And Malik is just. Like, you can tell from the very beginning that he is the dumb comic relief. And it is just, like, setting you up for the audience as a disappointment for the rest of the movie. Yeah, like, imagine Subotai is, like, your favorite food in a dish right before you. And right when you're starting to enjoy it, someone takes away the plate. 
And then Malik is represented by Malik doing his little double stab into your back. And he just does that to you. And that's what it's like. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm so bummed that this just doesn't do it for me. And it's because it's um just the, even like Jack said, Arnold gives it his all. I'll give him that. Maybe a lot of the people making it gave it their all, but I feel like studio meddling or lack of a competent script or something just really takes what was set up as like a great action fantasy movie in the first movie that does its own thing and becomes this paint by numbers fantasy that gets repeated ad nauseum for the next 30 years after this movie gets made. You know what they say, you can't sail a boat without floors. <laughs> that is absolutely true. You're right. Yeah, they say it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, all the time they do. Mm -hmm. A good crew can't pilot that. I'm going to yeah. basically agree with you guys. Two and a half swords. Um, let's go rewatch Conan the Barbarian because that one is good. <laughs> I'm down. Yeah. Well, eventually we're going to watch uh, the rest of the movies in the series, Red Sonia and Cole the Conqueror. Uh, Cole is like a spiritual sequel. Yeah. Because like a lot of the stuff from these movies like got pulled from an amalgam of the Conan and Cole stories that Howard wrote. But yes, we will touch upon those in future episodes. Yes. But until that time comes... We'd like to thank you all for listening and joining us as we talked about Conan the Destroyer <laughs> for our one year anniversary of Swords and Satire. Yeah, thanks for joining us for our one year. Woo! I'm happy. This was great. And next week, we're going to have something extra special. So make sure to tune in then. But before that, maybe head on over to iTunes and give us a rating if you had a good time listening. It's a really great way to help get the word out about our show to other people and maybe tell a friend or a loved one or a loved friend. Yeah. To listen to Swords and Satire. You can also follow us on social media at Swords and Satire on Facebook or Instagram or even Twitter. And you can join our Facebook group and keep up with all of our goings on. And our weekly memes about each movie we watch. The most important part of what we do. The memes. <laughs> nice. The most important meal of the day. The memes. <laughs> but until next time, and I can't say this emphatically enough. Hail Crom. Hail him. But that was not the last time they would review Conan's podcast. There were many more adventures of his to come that would one day lead to the crown upon his furrowed brow as the king. Yay! <laughs> but more on that in the next episode. <laughs> nice. <laughs>